Almighty Lord of light and darkness. Thank you for gathering us this morning that we might look into your word and see the glorious light of Jesus Christ, our Deliverer, our Savior, our Lord, worthy of all praise, worship, and glory. Come this morning, Lord, I pray, by your Spirit and open our eyes that we might see glorious and radiant truth from your word. Oh, that we might see Jesus. Not just understand Him, not just better be able to talk about Him, but I pray, Father, that we will see Him. That we'll see Him with the eyes of our heart. And that we may know Him better as the One who is revealed to us in Scriptures. Oh, that we could bask in the fullness of God in the face of Jesus Christ this morning. Would you shine your light in the darkness of our souls this morning, Father? Expose our hearts for what they are, that we might declare our utter and absolute and necessary need for the light of Jesus Christ to come and to deliver us and to turn us to be worshipers of the one true God. We ask, Father, that you'll do these things for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was, uh, God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. It's hard to imagine themes that are more permeated throughout all of our Bible than this very theme of darkness and light and the significance that our Bible gives to this very theme and understanding of darkness and light. Our tendency in our own hearts is to take these themes and to understand them in a what I'm going to call a dualistic way. Our world has kind of shake that a little bit where there's light trying to fight for its values and good and then there's darkness that's trying to fight for its values and bad and we're waiting for the day when we'll find out when one of these are going to win and triumph it's in many other religions this dualism And it was the framework by which the Egyptians in this day, in the time of our text this morning in Exodus, was working from. The Egyptians understood this dualistic pagan understanding of darkness and light. One was fighting against the other. And in the midst of this, the Lord is attempting, the Lord is revealing himself, not as the one who's on one side or the other, but the God who created both, And has authority over both. 
Do you see the incredible distinction and difference that is to the dualism of the Egyptians of this day as well as the dualism of our, of our thinking so often in our world today? The Lord is declaring Himself as the one true I am God and He's doing that by showing His authority over both light and darkness. For He created them and He has authority over them. He, he orders the parameters of this light and darkness. It says in Job 26.10, He, our Lord, has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. In other words, the Lord is the one who knows where that boundary and that line is. And it's amazing to know that the Lord has created that. And He orders this boundary between light and darkness and how that works. We also acknowledge that in our Bibles, this theme of light and darkness is often connected to the Lord revealing Himself as well as the Lord concealing Himself. Paul uses this this theme in way of deliverance and reconciliation and redemption. He says in Colossians 1.13, Paul does in the New Testament, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, meaning Christ, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, this Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. So he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to this kingdom of his beloved Son. And so we see here that we need eyes to see this morning. That this is not just a a physical reality, that there's light and darkness, that we came out of night last night, and then we come into the daytime and we see light today. But we need our eyes spiritually to be illumined, to be opened. That's why at the beginning of our time, as we look at um, the prayer right before the, right before the sermon, if you look in your worship journals, the top of page 3, the prayer right before the sermon is called the prayer of illumination. Historically, that's been a prayer that's been right before the sermon for the purpose that the Lord would, by His Spirit, open our eyes and help us see that He'll give us light. John Owen, an old Puritan, speaks of this absolute necessity of light in order to see Christ. And he says this in a book called Communion with the Triune God. He says this, There are none who despise Christ, but only that they... Know him not. In other words, if you knew him, you would never despise him. He says, There are none who despise Christ, but only they that know him not, whose eyes the God of this world has blinded. These are the ones who despise Christ, that they should not behold his glory. So if our eyes were were able to see just just a small amount of the glory of Christ, we would fall in love with this one who displays such beauty and such glory. So, this morning, as we consider this final uh, plague in the 
three sets of three. There's ten plagues, right? The tenth one is the, the ultimate, the climax of all the plagues. But building up to this, we've noticed that the plagues that we've been looking at, these nine, have been given to us in three sets of three. And we're in the penultimate plague, which is the plague before the ultimate plague, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And as we consider this plague this morning, my prayer is that we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ. That the blinders and darkness will fall away in our own eyes and souls. And light will flood into that darkness and that dullness of our hearts. And that we might revel in the glory and awe and long for with great joy the name of Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to see in verses 21 through 29 of Exodus chapter 10 this morning. I want us to see Christ. My prayer is that the Lord by His Spirit will do that for us this morning. As we consider our text together, I want us to notice it as it's broken up and it's divided up into three areas, three um, headings, three ways that we're going to order our thoughts this morning. Um, And I want us to notice them in this way. First, the darkness to be felt. Verses 21 through 23. The darkness to be felt. Verses 21 through 23. Second, I want us to notice... The sacrifice to be made. The sacrifice to be made. And this is in verses 24 through 26. The darkness to be felt, 21 through 23. The sacrifice to be made, verses 24 through 26. And then finally, the face not to be seen. The face not to be seen, verses 27 through 29. The darkness to be felt. The sacrifice to be made. And then thirdly and finally, verses 27 through 29, the face not to be seen. Let us look together first at the darkness to be felt. Thank you, Mike, for giving us an illustration of that. Very few of us can understand the world that the Egyptians were in in this day. We live with the assumption that a light switch is close by. (laughs) We live with the idea of streetlights on our streets. I remember early on taking my children when they were younger back home to my where I grew up in North Carolina out in the middle of the country. And they were amazed at the darkness. And they were amazed that they could actually see the stars. And they they were amazed that you could actually there were streets that didn't have lights on them. And uh, the darkness was something that was uncommon to them. Something that they were unaware of. And we so often forget the very same thing. So as we look at this passage, it's helpful for us to realize that this darkness was not something that um, was casual, but it was something that was terrifying, something that was horrific, something that, as it speaks of here, a darkness that could, that could be felt. So as we begin this morning as this plague, we notice that there is no warning given by the Lord through Moses to Pharaoh. The Lord jumps right into the, the, the plague. He thrusts the plague upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And like I said earlier, these plagues are broken up into three sets of three. So the last plague in the first set of three, that's plague number three, started in the same way. It just thrust the plague upon them. The sixth plague started in this way. It just, it just, it just went right into the plague. It never addressed Pharaoh. And so we see here in the third set of three, at the end plague number nine, it goes right into 
this plague beginning, being thrust upon Pharaoh. And it begins with something that's very familiar, as we've seen throughout the plagues. The Lord comes and commands Moses to do something particular, and that is to stretch out your hand toward heaven. See that in verse 21? The Lord is indicating here the source of this judgment is God himself, is from heaven, and yet the instrument of this judgment is Moses, who will be stretching out his hand to heaven. So the Lord here is calling Moses to stretch out his hand to heaven. And then we have an identification of what this plague is going to be. It says in verse 21 that there, once he stretches out his hand to heaven, there, will be, there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Do you see this identification of what this plague is going to be as the Lord is telling Moses? But then we have this interesting phrase that describes this darkness that's going to come upon the land. And it's at the end of verse 21. A darkness to be felt. A darkness to be felt. The idea of this phrase is to speak of the darkness as being tangible. As being something that can be touched and felt. The word also is given given as a a word picture. And it it most often is used in the Old Testament as as something that needs to be. It's describing a person who has to feel around in order to see something. A person who does not have the ability to see but has to touch in order to recognize or experience something that's next to them. This word for felt is used, for example, in Genesis 31-34, where Rachel, if you remember, she took the household gods and she put them in her cannibal's saddle and um, she sat on it to hide these household gods from her father. And then it says that her father came into the tent and it says in Genesis 31-34, Laban felt all about the tent but did not find these household gods. And that idea of feeling all around the tent was, was not able to see but was feeling around to see if he could find these household gods. Judges 16 speaks of the, the strong man Samson. After he had, had his eyes plucked out, Samson said to the young man who held him by his hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Remember that story? Remember that scene where he's getting ready to bring the house down on all of them, including himself? He was blind, and he says, I need to fill the pillars that are around me. That's the word that's being used here when it says this darkness is one to be felt. So the idea here is that the darkness was so severe that the people were left having to feel around for everything. It's the idea that they were literally groping around. They were not able to see. They had to to touch everything in order to move around in any way. The darkness indeed was tangible. And it made it so that nothing could be done, nothing could be seen. Everything had to be touched in order to be experienced. You see, this is how the Egyptians were coming to understand the Lord, the Lord of the Hebrews. The Lord was known to them through experiences. They were, the Lord was being made known to them in the sense that the Lord was powerful and had authority over not only, not only the world of the Hebrews, but also their Egyptian culture and their deities and their gods. And yet, the whole time, they've only known him in this experiential way where they were experiencing these plagues, not in a relational way where they were coming into covenant with him. In the Old Testament, specifically in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, it's also called the Pentateuch, but Torah is the word I'd like for us to use, we find that a, 
uh, the way that darkness and light is used. One is, and most of us understand this, that light is used to reveal who God is, right? But what is interesting is uniquely in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, this word is used to protect God's people. Darkness is used to protect God's people from the full exposure and revelation of who God is. This is uniquely true in Genesis and in, in, in Exodus. That this darkness isn't just something that blinds people so that they cannot see or understand the God of heaven, but it's, darkness is also used in way of for God's people to protect them and to care for them. Why? Because man shall not see God and live, according to Exodus 33.20. So we know back in Genesis... When Abram had that frightening encounter with God where the Lord was going to make that covenant with him, was that in broad daylight? No. What we find in Revelation 15, 17 is that it was during a time of darkness and of night. It says in Genesis 15, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Why was it necessary for there to be darkness? Well, it was to protect the full exposure of who God was to Abraham. Because man cannot, cannot see the Lord and live. Later on, we're going to find that on the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments were given, it says that the Lord was protecting his people by this cloud of darkness that was over the mountain. It says in Exodus 20, right after the Ten Commandments had been given, it says, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. <laughs> you hear that? So God is protecting his people. He's caring for his people with darkness in the Old Testament and specifically in Exodus and in, Jesus, and in, and in, and in Genesis. However, this is, not, this is not how darkness is being used here in our passage. Even though darkness is used like that later, we find that in this passage, the Lord isn't using darkness to protect his people but he's using darkness, which is probably more common in, in, the, in the Torah, and that is darkness to punish the wicked. So we see here that when it says that the darkness was one to be felt, it explains this phrase. This phrase lies here as if it, it, just, it begs for, what do you mean that this darkness is one to be felt? Well, in verses 22 and 23, it helps us understand what exactly he means by that. So it says, the, the Lord tells Moses, commands Moses, declares Moses to do this thing, tells him what's going to happen. And then in verse 22, as we've seen throughout all the other plagues, the Lord himself um, um, tells Moses to do that, and then Moses obeys. Moses stretches out his hand, verse 22, toward heaven. And it says here, there was a pitch darkness. Do you see what it speaks of here? Well, in what way was there this pitch darkness, this, this absolute Total darkness. How was it true? Well, it says that it was in all the land of Egypt. In other words, all over the entire land of this mighty, incredible nation of Egypt, there was darkness, pitch darkness, absolute darkness, a darkness that can be felt. And it wasn't just for a few hours, or maybe even for a few minutes. But instead, it says it here that it was for three days. Three days this was taking place. And then it goes to underline even more so, gives us an understanding of exactly what was taking place. In verse 23, it says, They, meaning the Egyptians, did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. In other words, it completely shut them down. 
It completely made it so that this busy commerce place of Egypt, one of the busiest places probably in the world, this place of busy commerce, this place of amazing technology and ingenuity, this place of influential industry, the entire nation of Egypt, the whole thing was shut down, was brought to a standstill, was brought to a sudden stop for three days. Why? Because God brought such darkness on this place. What an amazing thing. An entire massive nation put on stop, ceased doing anything for three days. And then notice at the end of verse 23, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Do you see the contrast? Do you see what's happening here? Some have tried to explain this, and it's amazing all the pages that are written about how this was a, a sandstorm that brought darkness, and that with the combination of the locusts and the sandstorm, that there was more severe darkness than usual, and they were trying to explain it in all kinds of unusual ways. But none of them could account for the fact that there was this absolute pitch darkness, this darkness to be felt throughout all the land of Egypt, shutting everything down. And yet, where God's people were, there was light. Goshen, not that far away. Could it be an eclipse? They tried to explain it that way. But there's no way an eclipse would have done such an event. It's clear here in our text. Everything that's given to us in our text here says that the Lord himself was doing this. He was bringing this upon the Egyptians to show his power and his authority. It is hard, is it not, for us to think of Egypt, either in the ancient idea of Egypt or even modern-day Egypt today, without reference to the importance of the sun, isn't it? I mean, you think about all of the artifacts from the era of Pharaoh that point to the amazing importance and preeminence of the sun. All the different pictures and and icons and items in those pyramids with the sun being prominent as an image there. The sun wasn't just something that we can, when we think of Egypt, we think of two things. First, we think probably of the Nile, but it's hard for us to think of Egypt without the blazing sun being there as well. And understanding Egypt in that way. Egypt deified the sun. This shouldn't surprise us. The sun in the, in the Egyptian culture was, was the preeminent and the chief of all the deities. The sun god of the Egyptian culture was Amon-Ra. And he was considered the chief and the ultimate of all the other gods. All the other deities in the Egyptian culture had to answer to this one Sun God, Amon-Ra. The thought of the sun rising and their culture and their understanding was a pagan understanding of resurrection where all of creation is being brought back to life each morning. And then the sun setting at the end of the day was speaking of the idea of all of creation laying back down for rest and even speaks of the underworld. The most expensive temple that's been dug up in Egypt is a temple called called Karnak. And that temple was specifically devoted to the sun god of the Egyptian culture. And finally, and probably most important for our text is this, and this is most interesting, I think. Pharaoh, all the pharaohs, were considered to be begotten from the sun god. They were children, the pharaohs, were children born of Amon-Ra, and therefore the pharaohs were deified, and they had unique and special access and favor with this chief deity. Now that's interesting, isn't it? 
Because the final, the penultimate, the next to the final, plague that the Lord issues out on the Egyptians is one that's not only a plague where the darkness is such that it can be felt, but we find that this plague was one that was personal. (laughs) It was a personal attack upon Pharaoh and, and his deification and the chief deity of all of Egypt. It was a personal attack upon the power and influence of Pharaoh himself. Why couldn't Pharaoh, if indeed he was the the begotten one from the sun god, why couldn't he make this darkness go away? Why couldn't he fix it in any way? So, do we see that this is, in fact, one of the most important of the plagues? In that it leveled Pharaoh himself from any having any power or an authority. Because if, if he had power and authority over anything, it should be the sun, as one who was understood to be one that was born of this sun god. It's important for us to know that this attack was not only tangible, this plague. It was not only tangible, it was not only severe, but it was very personal. The Lord was clearly proving himself more powerful and more superior than all the deities of Egypt and of Pharaoh himself by causing this darkness to come over the land. The darkness, indeed, was felt. And I'm sure Pharaoh felt it in a particular way that maybe the others didn't. And so this darkness was one that was amazingly personal. It was an assault upon the very deity of their chief god. So verses 24 through 26 is a sacrifice to be made. Pharaoh was so offended, he had to respond to this personal attack. He had to come out and make some kind of negotiation or compromise. He had to make sure this was fixed. He wasn't able to go to his God that he was obviously the son of to make this work. But interestingly enough, it says in verse 24, he comes to Moses. Then Pharaoh called to Moses because he's desiring to fix this problem of the three days of darkness. He calls to Moses and says, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. This is a sacrifice to be made. A sacrifice to be made. Pharaoh has been one who's compromised all along the way. The first compromise that he made, if you remember, was one where he says, um, it was actually in Exodus 8.28, Pharaoh says, listen, you guys can go and worship, but don't go too far away. Won't you stay here close by Egypt, or maybe even in Egypt? And you remember that in that particular scenario in 828, they actually say, they say, listen, if we, if we offer our sacrifices here, um, they, 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 will, they will kill us because this is so offensive to the Egyptian culture. So the first compromise, the first negotiation, Pharaoh says, why don't you guys stay close to home and worship right here? And they say that will not do. Moses clearly indicates that will not do. And then last week, if we noticed in uh, Exodus chapter 10, verse 10, he's saying, Pharaoh's saying, listen, you guys can go, but leave your children here. Leave your children here with us. And that's why it says here in our passage in verse 24, it says, go and serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go. In other words, he's saying, I'm I'm willing to let your, your little ones go. But then this third compromise that Pharaoh makes It's one where he says, only, verse 24, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Now, I want us to think for a minute. We've got to, because we're kind of in the 
in the woods here in Exodus, and we're looking at the pieces, it's easy to forget the big, broad scope. Let me remind us here. The Egyptians are issuing out suffering upon God's people. God's people are in Goshen, but they're not just having a heyday in their daylight that they're experiencing. They're, they're still servants and slaves. It says in Exodus 1, we need to remember that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Exodus 1, 13 through 14. And with this in mind, we need to understand that the Egyptians wanted out. They wanted to be delivered. But what was it that God kept saying that he wanted for his people? He wanted them to be let go that they may serve me. In other words, the deliverance wasn't the primary point of Exodus. Getting them out of Egypt wasn't the the end. It was the means to the end. What the Lord wanted for his people is that they may worship and honor and serve him, as it speaks of here. And so, what a great opportunity. Now, Moses is the only one that, that, that we see that was actually being spoken, of here, spoken to here by Pharaoh, right? But if, if the Egyptians had the opportunity to have the audience with the Pharaoh, they would have never accepted the, the compromise of, why don't you guys stay here in Egypt and worship? Well, no, that doesn't get us out, and we want out, right? Why don't you leave your children here in Egypt, and y'all go off and do your thing, and then you can come back? No, no, we want to be delivered. We want out and to be able to stay away, and we want to get out of here so that we can go worship our God. But this third offer, if, if getting out of Egypt was their only issue, this was the way to go. You see, this compromise was, was perfect. We can get out of Egypt, leave all of our herds and cattle here. We can get out of Egypt, and when we get out there, then we can figure out the whole thing about worshiping God. But what does Moses say here? Moses say, no, the point isn't that we just leave. You see, their suffering and the way they've been treated ruthlessly, their slavery, their bitterness, and all of the slavery that they've been experiencing, the, the reason they needed to get out wasn't just to, be, just, just to get away from their suffering and the difficulty of their lives, but no, the Lord wanted to bring them into communion with Him. You see, that was the end. That was the aim. That was the point that the Lord wanted to bring them, not just out of their suffering, out of their ruthless slavery, he wanted to bring them into communion with him. The book of Exodus, the first half, is what? Is them coming out of Egypt, right? And then the Lord gives them the law. What's the second half of the book of Exodus? It's all about the temple and how they can rightly and appropriately worship their God. The book of Exodus isn't just about God's people being delivered. It's about God's people being delivered so that they can worship the one who created them. And so this compromise would have, been, would have been perfect if the aim wasn't for them to worship. So what, what does Moses say here? Moses says in verse 24, or excuse me, verse 25, and Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. You see, brothers and sisters, the point that I want us to make is that the Lord was seeking to deliver his people for the purpose that they may serve him. Do you and I often settle for deliverance from our sorrows and our heartaches and our difficulties, forgetting that the Lord doesn't want want to just deliver us from the struggles and the difficulties, but he's doing that for the the very primary reason is that we may have communion with him? Do you simply want deliverance from the consequences of your sin or from your difficult life? Or do you realize that the Lord is seeking to deliver us that we might worship him? One of the best ways for you and I to evaluate that in our heart, that question in our heart, is to ask this vital and necessary question, do we need a sacrifice? You see, if we just want Jesus to love us, if we want Jesus to just help us, if we, if we want Jesus to simply show us how to have a better, more fulfilled, or happy life, if we want Jesus just to get us out of the painful, difficult circumstances that we're in, a sacrifice is senseless and unnecessary. However, brothers and sisters, if we see that the Lord loves us too much to simply deliver us, he wants to bring us near. He wants us to know him and to commune with him. If we come to the point where we're not satisfied with mere deliverance from our hardships, from our bitter lives, from our being pressed down, and we realize that coming into his presence and worshiping him in all of his glory and for his namesake, to have fellowship with him, to acknowledge our sin and guilt, If we begin going down that path, you know what we will say? We'll say what Moses said, and it is this. We must have our sacrifice. There's got to be sin. There's got to be blood spilt if there's sin in my heart. It's not enough for the Lord just to get me out of my difficult times. It's it's more important, Lord, that you bring me into communion with you. Could it be our greatest difficulties and struggles is that not that we want too much from the Lord, you see, we think, well, the Lord hasn't gotten me, gotten me out of this difficult circumstance, so obviously I want too much from him. No, it's you're wanting too little from him. You're wanting just to get out of your fix instead of stepping into his presence. Our sacrifice, however, is not one of flocks and herds, as Moses was asking for. If we're going to settle not simply for mere deliverance, we need to realize that our sacrifice can only be provided by a loving Father in heaven. The call to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is not simply a call to imitate or to live like Jesus in all the things he did. A call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ is a call to trust in what he did on the cross. It means we believe his sacrifice It doesn't just mean that we look at his life and see it as a great example when we live that way. That is true. Jesus was a perfect example of one who lives in communion with the Father. And we need to live like him, yes. But what he wants is for us to be in communion with the Father and with him 
And that only happens by sacrifice. Only when blood is spilt can we acknowledge that what happened there on the cross was that Jesus Christ, our Savior, bore the wrath for our sin that we deserved upon himself. We must have a sacrifice, brothers and sisters. In other words, if we're going to come out of the darkness of our self-ordered lives and see the light of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, we need a sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the most definitive, clear revelation of all the attributes of God. If we want to see God clearly, we need to look to Christ. To see God in all of His glory, in all of His multifaceted attributes, we must look, brothers and sisters, to Christ. And to specifically, not just Christ in way of His general life lived, but specifically, brothers and sisters, we want to see this, this, this kaleidoscope of His attributes. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said... Light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. It is God himself who displays himself, who reveals himself in a glorious way at the cross of Jesus Christ. There at the cross, we see with greatest clarity God's wrath, his grace, his mercy, his judgment, his power, his sovereignty, his goodness, his holiness, his steadfast love, his compassion, his wisdom. Christ is the prism whereby all the glories and glorious attributes of God erupt forth in glorious light. All of these burst floors, burst forth in resplendent rays. 1 John chapter 1 says, And this is the message we have. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Brothers and sisters, come to Christ. Only in Christ, only in this sacrifice. As Moses insisted upon this sacrifice, so we too must acknowledge that if we're going to come out of the darkness of our soul, we must look to Christ. Finally, a face not to be seen. Notice verses 27 through 29 quickly, if you will. Notice that three times it speaks of Pharaoh's face. It says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, He says to Moses in verse 28, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on that day, on that day you will, that you see my face, you shall die. And then Moses speaks back to him and says, As you say, I will not see your face again. The point here is that the negotiations have ceased. There's no longer going to be an opportunity for mercy and grace for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's last chance to be able to affirm and to submit to the lordship of God has ceased. His final hardening has happened, and he doesn't even know it. He insists that Moses never come back into his presence, and therefore Moses, who is the spokesperson for God himself, Pharaoh will never have access to the word of God in his life again. 
by denying Moses to be in his presence, he's cutting off any other opportunity for him to be delivered from the darkness of his own soul and heart. Pharaoh's giving up his last chance to turn from his spiritual darkness. We find that this word for darkness occurs one more time. The next time this word darkness occurs in the book of Exodus, turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, just a couple pages over. The next time this word darkness occurs in the book of Exodus, it speaks of the final, last chance hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the point that he goes even to his death in this darkness. It says in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19, this is obviously the, uh, the story of the Red Sea and God's people crossing over the Red Sea. Very, um, very well known. But notice with me, if you will, specifically in verse 19 of chapter 14 of Exodus, it says, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel. So the angel of God is, is leading out the host of Israel as they're crossing over the Red Sea. This angel of God moved and went behind them, right? This angel of God moved and went behind this horde of people, which were God's people, they were going through the Red Sea. And the pillar of the cloud moved from before them, God's people, and stood behind them. Verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And so this angel and this pillar of cloud goes behind Israel. Now it's protecting Israel. It's between Israel and the Egyptians. And it says in verse 20, the, the, the next sentence, And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. What was the Lord doing for his people? He was protecting them. How? By this cloud of darkness. What was the Lord doing to the Egyptians in that time? He was punishing them. Because what we find is that they were unable to get out of the Red Sea. Drop down with me, if you will, chapter 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord was used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see what that darkness, that hardening, eventually brought Pharaoh to? It brought him to being in the middle of that Red Sea with absolutely nothing to look at except for that dark cloud that separated him from the Egyptians. We see the end of Pharaoh's darkness and hardening. The culmination of this darkness and hardening as we look at the Red Sea occurrence as he saw this dark cloud which was reflective of his heart. There are those that may be here this morning who think they may have a chance later to trust in Christ. You may be sitting here this morning and you, like Pharaoh, hardening your heart, saying, nope, not this time, maybe later. Maybe another day, maybe another time. I have to do other things. I have other things to get, get done. Maybe later. I want to implore you, brothers and sisters, I want to implore you, congregation, that if the Lord is showing the face of Jesus Christ to you this morning, do not turn away. Do not wait. 
I want to call you to face the truth of Jesus Christ as your only hope and deliverance, your only salvation, the one who's called you to worship him in spirit and the truth. You may never again be face to face with this call to repent and to believe. You may never again have this opportunity to take care and to believe. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart. This, this book of Hebrews is a pastor talking to his congregation, and he's saying, Take care, all of you. Listen, each and every one of you, individually, listen. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What's that going to do? It's going to lead you to fall away from the living God. You're a churchgoer. You're a Christian. You're the one who's, who said you believe. And he's saying, we need to take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to do what? To fall away from the living God. This is what we have to do. We have to exhort one another. How often? Every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. We've got to be exhorting one another in the Lord. For we have come to share in Christ. You have come to share in Christ. Listen to what the passage says in Hebrews 3. If, indeed, you hold this original confidence firm to the end, your assurance of salvation isn't whether you believed in one point in time in your past, Your assurance of salvation is if you endure to the end. If you make it to the end, trusting in Christ. We live in a dangerous world, brothers and sisters. Take care, lest you have an unbelieving heart. So, the good news of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has been displayed to you today. Do not harden your hearts, but instead come, repent, Believe on the cross work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because this is our message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, Listen, as He is light, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, it cleanses us from all our sin. Let us pray.